You know, we've been preaching through the Revelation since September, and hopefully you've noticed that um, it is, uh, well, it's a, it's, a strange, it's a strange book. It's a weird book. It begins with the seven uh, letters to the seven angels of the seven churches. But the Revelation is primarily a vision sent to the people in those seven churches. And in the vision, everything is determined. In fact, we literally, well, we see what literally appears to be all of space and time in the right hand of God, this seven-sealed scroll. Chapter 4, um, Jesus calls to John, and he says, John, come up here. I have something to show you. And remember, John uh, goes up there, and he sees everything good and everyone worshiping the one upon the, the throne. And in the right hand of God is this scroll with seven seals like the seven days of creation. So I think John is really looking at all of space and time from the standpoint of eternity. And, and, and that means everything is set. Earthquakes, famines, wars, the dragon, the beast, the, the great harlot, the kings of the earth, even the new Jerusalem coming down. It's somehow like all in here. Everything is determined. But as Jesus prepares to open the scroll, revealing the meaning of all space and time, the 24 elders fall down around the throne, holding something in their hands. They, they hold, each holds a harp in his hand and something else. And, and, and I think the something else is really quite odd. Revelation 5 verse 8, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the throne, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. The saints. That's y'all. And, and the prayers, the prayers, I guess, that you did just pray. The stuff in the bowls is your prayers. Prasuke in Greek. It literally means prayer wish or prayer desire or prayer request. It's odd because it appears that God's will is set. All of space and time in his, is, is, is in his hand. But look, there's your prayers outside of space and time. Stinking up the room as God unwraps the meaning of space and time. Your prayers. Are they determined by space and time? Or do they determine space and time? Create space and time. Your prayers. John 14, 12, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Ever, ever since I learned that magic formula in my name in junior high, I've always prayed my, ended my prayers with, in the name of Jesus, amen. But I haven't gotten whatever I've asked. And yet I've witnessed numerous signs and wonders, several healings, even experienced one myself. But it hasn't been whatever I want, whenever I say, in the name of Jesus, amen. 
In Mark eleven twenty four, Jesus says this. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Whatever you ask, believe that you have received it. Which makes me wonder, why would you ask? Right? If you already believed that you had re received it, why would you ask unless, unless maybe you just somehow enjoyed asking? Believe that you've received it, perfect tense, and it will be yours, future tense. Well, I've tried it, and it doesn't seem to work. <laughs> I mean, you've tried it too, right? You read that verse, you tried it, didn't, didn't it seem to work, so what do you do? You try harder! I try harder! Faith! Faith! Work up faith! And, and I try to get better words, bigger words, more, more, more words. Jack Lew was an old friend and a fellow Presbyterian pastor, one day a fellow approached him after the service and said this. He said, speed prayer has revolutionized my life. I'm planning to open an academy and teach it to others, and I want you, Jack, to be a part. With speed prayer, so much more can be said. I've developed a system of designating requests with symbols. For instance, family concerns are designated F. Arguments are designated three. An argument with my wife is an F3. A workplace argument, a W3. Missionaries are A7. So you petition God saying, A7, W3, F3, in Jesus' name, amen. What do you think, Jack? Jack said he looked at him and realized the guy was serious, and so he said, wow. That's really great. You know, you also ought to develop speed fasting. That way you could fast between breakfasts and lunch and never miss any meals. <laughs> the guy just looked at Jack and said, hey, you're not taking me seriously, are you? Sadly, we do take guys like that seriously. And actually, every human word is a a symbol like A7W3 or, or F3, and we think that we'll be heard for our many words and our, and our better words, and then we wonder, does prayer work? You know, asking the question, does prayer work, is a little like one of my children asking another of my children, does a conversation with dad work? You know, when they were little children, I almost always knew what they wanted before they asked for it and yet I still wanted them to ask. But if they tried to ask with more words and bigger words and better words, it usually didn't work out that well for them. <laughs> please, 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 Daddy, please, please, please. You said I deserve, I want, I need. Ooh, I'll tell Mommy. I'll tell her. If I were God, I think I'd just get sick of all our prayers. You may remember that Bruce Nolan wanted to be God in the movie Bruce Almighty, and God Almighty gave Bruce his request. Bruce got the job, and they just didn't know what to do with all the prayers. Prayers, okay, prayers. Uh, this creepy whisper thing has to end. Organization and management, that's what I need. I need a system, something concrete. Concentrate. Files. Let all prayers be organized into files. Well, that takes care of the voices. Not exactly a space saver, though. Grace might notice. I know. Prayer post-its! <laughs> so if I were God, 
I think I'd get sick of all our prayers. Actually, I get sick of my own prayers. In fact, there are certain kinds of prayers that just totally stress me out. To be specific, prosukome, prayer requests. If I try to pray through a list of prayer requests before I go to bed, I seriously get so stressed I just can't even, I can't sleep. I'll pray something like, God, help mom with this thing or whatever, and God, would you please give peace to that person that's in the hospital tonight, etc., etc., and then I'll start thinking. I'll start thinking, you know, if I were a a better son, I'd remember to call mom in the morning, and if I were a a better pastor, well, I'd, I'd go to visit that person in the hospital before I had breakfast with that family that I need to meet with. I better get up and make a note in my calendar, and, and now, God, I prayed for peace. Peace. I pray for peace. When am I going to get peace? I'm not feeling any peace. How long until you give me peace? And, and oh yeah, in, in Jesus' name, amen. <sighs> Remember Revelation 6-9 at the opening of the fifth seal? The witnesses that have been slain for the word of God under the altar, they, they pray, how long, O Lord, until you judge and avenge our blood? Avenge is that great word, ectikasis, which means bring out uh, righteousness, make things right. And that's, that's really all of our prosukume, right? All of our prayer requests are that God would make things right. We might not be exactly sure what right is, and we might not agree on what's right, but, but that's what we're asking. We want God to make things right, ectikasis. Well, the witnesses cry out, how long, O Lord? The witnesses are Old Testament saints like Jeremiah and Ezekiel that have been slaughtered for, for the word, and they're crying out, how long until you make it right? You can read Jeremiah's. They do that in the Bible. It's in the Bible, and it seems like they're still doing this wherever they are. How long, O oh Lord, until you make it right? It's like they can't sleep. Because remember, they're each given this white robe and told to chill out, to rest. A little longer, chill out, until more folks are martyred just like them. <laughs> Weird. Crazy. But, but I was just wondering if God gets sick of the incessant chatter. Our many words. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this. When you pray, go into your room and shut the door. Don't make it a show. Your Father will reward you in secret. And don't think you'll be heard for your many words. Your Father already knows what you need before you ask Him. When you pray, say, Our Abba, our Father in heaven. A while ago, I found this old videotape in our front hall closet. It's a tape of my parents' backyard before they moved. I wanted to tape it and remember how things looked. And in the, in the tape, there's this incessant chatter in the background. It's my three-year-old son, Coleman, following me around, I mean, like constantly, asking, Daddy, 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 and, and, and then some sort of question to which I would respond, Yes, Coleman, okay, Coleman, maybe Coleman, no, Coleman, all right, Coleman, whatever, Coleman. I don't remember the questions, but just hearing Daddy, Daddy, Daddy on the tape, it almost like broke my heart. I remembered it was like sweet incense that would rise before me, fill the atmosphere, and inform everything I did. So anyway, does prayer matter? Does prayer work? 
In John 14, 14, Jesus said, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Then in John 16, 24, very same conversation at the Last Supper, Jesus then says this, henceforth, until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Holy crap. It's been three years. And these guys have been with them through thick and thin. They've seen amazing signs and wonders even perform them. And so far, they've asked nothing in his name. So what does it mean to ask something in the name of Jesus? And why would we ask if we already have? St. Paul writes, all things are yours. You are Christ and Christ is God's. No, I'm not saying that I understand this stuff. I'm just hoping that the revelation would help us believe this stuff. Chapter 8, verse 1. When the Lord opened the seventh seal, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at, at epi, it's actually literally on, stood on the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of this angel. Then the angel took the censer filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Romans 8.1, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence. Now that's not what I would have expected. I mean, this is the, the pinnacle, the, the seventh seal now the scroll is open, and silence. All of heaven is silent. And yet all of heaven is a, a symphony. Remember? Four living creatures around the throne that never stop saying, holy, holy, holy. And God constantly upholds all things with his word. It's silent. It's silent. But maybe, but maybe God is still speaking Remember Elijah's cave? The wind rent the mountains and God was not in the wind. After the wind, an earthquake, but God was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire, but God was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. Or, or as it's translated in the ESV footnote, the sound of a thin silence. I once heard God speak with human words. So I know he can do it. He speaks to my wife with human words. She has what I call the gifts of the words of knowledge, or what I think Paul called the gifts of the words of knowledge. So, so, so God, God can use human words. And to be honest, I, I really struggle with anger at God because he doesn't do it more often. But you see, I think that's because I assume that human words clarify the divine word. But think about it. Human words must always be a reduction of the di divine word, like, like taking the word of love and nailing it down and turning him into a law, knowledge of good and evil on a page. Human words. 
The divine word must always be emptied to be understood by us. But perhaps not to be known by us. Or to know us. Sometimes I can just sit with Susan in silence. And more is communicated in silence than a million human words on some page. Revelation chapter 8 verse 1. Silence. But maybe God is still speaking. Or maybe he's waiting for us to speak, like a new father waits for his baby to say, Abba, Dada, Papa. Soren Kierkegaard wrote, One is speaking when he remains silent in order to show the listener that he is beloved. One is speaking when he listens. There's this great scene in the Chronicles of Narnia when Aslan reveals himself to the boy Shasta. He reveals himself as the one who's always been with Shasta in a million different forms, in a million different ways, in every situation. And so Shasta asks this presence in the dark, Who are you? And the voice responds, One who has waited long for you to speak as if absolutely everything had been arranged for the moment when Shasta would finally speak. So does prayer matter? Well, here in Revelation chapter 8, it's like the only thing that matters. It's like sweet incense that rises before the throne of God the Father. And yet in verse 1, all of heaven is silent which I think would imply that all of us, the 144,000 and the great multitude then around the throne are also silent, and all those chattering witnesses under the altar demanding ecticasis are silent. A lot of commentators argue that all of heaven is silent because the witnesses under the altar are silent because God has answered their prayers for vengeance by throwing fire on the earth in the form of lightning, thunder, and earthquakes. But the lightning, thunder, and earthquake, they don't happen until after the silence. They're not the reason for the silence. All that the witnesses would have seen after their prayers for vengeance and before the great silence would have been the opening of the sixth seal which revealed some sort of slaughtered lamb. And, and it isn't a weird idea that Jesus would answer their prayers for vengeance with that sort of vengeance. When over and over again, Scripture says vengeance belongs to God. And Jesus told us, love your enemies, pray for those that persecute you. And you know, when the lamb was slaughtered, he cried out, Father, forgive. And then there was an earthquake. The sky grew black. The earth shook. I mean, maybe that was the vengeance. Father, forgive. Maybe it was vengeance, but not a vengeance of this world. Maybe their prayers were answered, but not in the way they thought that they would be answered. The thing that moves the earth and shatters every wall of stone is forgiveness, as if forgiveness is vengeance, as if kindness to your enemies is like pouring burning coals upon their head or something. Well, anyway, at the opening of the seventh seal, every tongue, every mouth is stopped, for something is revealed. 
At the opening of the sixth seal, some may have caught a glimpse, but they couldn't have fully understood the meaning. At the opening of the seventh seal, the meaning would be revealed to all. What do they see at the opening of the seventh seal? And now I have to try to use human words to describe something that can really only be known by an encounter with the divine word. But nonetheless, we're here in church. I'm preaching a sermon, so we'll try. They see the judgment of God. John sees a scroll with seven seals in the strong right hand of God. Seven is tremendously important because, remember, the Bible uh, begins with the creation of everything in seven days, and on the seventh day, everything is finished, all of space and time. So the seven days of creation, remember, they reminded us of this. This is a diagram of all space and time according to the latest satellite data from NASA. In Jesus' day, the common idea was that God created all things in a Sabbath week of creation days that were each at least a thousand years long. So God created all things in six eons or six ages, ions. Some physicists would even argue that 13.8 billion years from the standpoint of the earth is six days from the standpoint of creation or the cosmic background radiation at the, right after the Big Bang. Whatever the case, the ancients thought that the seventh age would be different. For, 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 from, from, the, from those six ages. The seventh age would be different from the six ages. From the seventh day, everything is good. And the seventh day is an endless day. No evening and no morning. They thought that time looked something like this. Or maybe something like this. For on the sixth day of creation, on the sixth day of the week, at the sixth hour, eternity invaded time as Jesus hung on the cross. The sky grew black, the earth shook, and Jesus cried out, it is finished. It was the end of the ages, the ions and the beginning of eternity, that which is ionios. And, and so maybe time looks something like this. See, Jesus is the beginning and Jesus is the end. He's the presence of God. And in him, we live, move, and have our being. Space and time are literally like in his hand, like a scroll in the strong right hand of God. And so what they see at the opening of the seventh seal is the seventh day of creation, which is somehow the revelation of eternity in time, the revelation of eternity, which is the judgment of God. Genesis 1.31, and God saw everything that he had made, and look, behold, it was very good, everything very Good. I mean, if, if you looked and you saw that, that everything was very good, well, you probably wouldn't beg God to make anything good, right? You wouldn't beg for ectikasis, make things right. Everything was very good, and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. At the opening of the seventh seal they see God's Sabbath rest. Throughout Scripture, God commands his people to be very good, to be very, very good at doing nothing. Stop! That's Shabbat in Hebrew. Stop it. Just stop. Sabbath. 
Six days are to work, and the seventh, stop. There are three places in the Old Testament where God explains why. Exodus 20, you will stop because I created you. Deuteronomy 5, you will stop because I delivered you. Exodus 31, you will stop because I sanctify you. I justify you. At the opening of the seventh seal, they see the judgment, the seventh day of creation, the Sabbath, and they see the Jubilee. The Jubilee was the Sabbath of the Sabbaths to be celebrated after 49 years, 77 times 7, the 50th year, a Pentecost year. In the Jubilee, prisoners were released, all debts were forgiven, and people returned to their ancestral homes, their property. You'll remember that Jesus came after 490 years in Daniel's prophecy. That's 7 times 7 times 10. You may also remember that he stood up in the synagogue in Luke 4, and he read from Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captive, sight to the blind, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's the Jubilee. He's quoting Isaiah 61 too. The year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. That's weird. But you read Isaiah and you see that it's like a weird and holy kind of vengeance. The Messiah will bring out righteousness. He will make righteous by trampling the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, which makes wine that's blood and blood that's wine, and he's going to do it alone. You see, I think he did it on a cross. Jubilee begins then with the day of vengeance, which is also the day of atonement. Leviticus 25, on the day of atonement, the Israelites were to sound the trumpet throughout, throughout the land. So it's probably going to take more than one trumpet, like seven trumpets throughout the land, and the jubilee would begin. Atonement, vengeance, and jubilee. All the same event somehow. Seems strange, but it makes sense when you think about it. It was the seventh time around, on the seventh day, at the blast of the seven trumpets, that the walls of Jericho came tumbling down. God hates walls. He hates walls which separate and behind which each of us hides. Atonement means at-one-ment. To proclaim jubilee is vengeance upon all the walls behind which each one of us hides. Atonement is vengeance upon the self-righteous prison of the human ego. And atonement is what Christ accomplished on his cross. And atonement is what's described at the opening of the seventh seal. The seven angels are given seven trumpets. And then another angel, and remember angel means messenger, technically. Another angel, another weird angel, comes with a golden censer for offering incense. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest, and only the high priest, would offer incense and then go behind the, off, the, the, the veil in order to sprinkle the blood of sacrifice upon the mercy seat, which was the throne of God on top of the Ark of the Covenant. This angel offers incense, and this angel mediates our prayers. Jesus is the angel of Yahweh. He's also our high priest, and he is the only mediator between God and man. He mediates the new and eternal covenant, and he offers up our prayers. In the book of Hebrews, it describes how he goes into the Holy of Holies on our behalf, but not with the blood of bulls and goats, 
his own blood. In verse 3 of Revelation 8, this angel doesn't just stand at the altar. I mean, the translators change it because I think it just seems so weird to them, but the Greek is clear. He stands on the altar, and he is given much incense. Who gave him this incense? Well, how about three wise men from the east who came bringing gold, frankincense, and myrrh? That's incense. How about that prostitute of Mary of Bethany who anointed him with fragrant oil? How about the woman in the house of Simon the leper who pours, you know, a whole bottle of pure nard worth a year's wage on Christ's head just a few days before he's offered up a fragrance that would have filled his nostrils as he hung there on the tree? Or how about Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea who anointed his body with, get this, 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes before they placed it in the tomb? You see, the picture is absolutely breathtaking. For 1,500 years, they'd been sacrificing lambs to the Lord. And now they see the Lord is the lamb? The witnesses cry from under the altar, how long until you judge and avenge our blood on the earth? And then they see that God avenges their blood with his own blood. It's always been his blood. The life is in the blood, and he is the life in all blood. He's the life in your blood. Your blood is his blood. The life is is his. He is the life. Perhaps the Lord says, vengeance is mine because all the blood is his. And he chooses to bleed for all, once and for all, all of space, all of time. Hebrews 7, 8, and 9 describes how Jesus is our high priest who has secured for us an eternal redemption by means of his own blood in an eternal covenant. Chapter 9, 26, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages. The ions, at the end of the ions, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The end of the ions, the end of the ages is the end of time and the edge of eternity. That which is ionios. They see eternity. They see the way that things truly are. They see that which is outside of space and time, beyond the Big Bang and in the depths of your heart. They see themselves worshiping the Lamb upon the throne. They see when and where I am is. They wake up from the illusion of their own sovereignty and see that God is and always was sovereign. They wake up from the illusion of their own control. They wake up from the illusion that they are salvation because they see God is salvation. And it is finished. Actually, it's eternal. It's an eternal gospel. At the sounding of the seventh trumpet, chapter 14, we're going to see this angel fly across the sky announcing an eternal gospel to every nation, people, tongue, and tribe. They see God is salvation, and everyone falls silent. Why are they silent? Well, why do we normally speak? 
why do you normally speak? I mean, you may have to think about this a while, but don't you normally speak to make things right? Ecdecasis? I mean, the world needs your judgment, and so you speak your word into the world. Don't you normally speak to create your world? Don't you normally speak to create yourself in the image of God? Don't you normally speak to atone for yourself? I mean to save yourself. Even if you call it saving others, you save others to save yourself and save the world. Don't you normally speak to create yourself, redeem yourself, save yourself, and justify yourself? Well, what if you saw that you were already justified? And everything was good. Well, you might stop speaking for a time. Shabbat in Hebrew. Romans 3.19. That every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, that's the knowledge of good and evil, you know, that getting written down in black and white words on a page. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. For all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified by his grace as a gift. You cannot justify yourself if you've already been justified. Why do you speak? Why do you pray? I mean, isn't it usually to improve yourself, to justify yourself or save yourself? So what do you do? You, you use the creator to create yourself. You use the judge in order to justify yourself. You use the Savior to save yourself, which means you say that you pray in the name of Jesus, but you're actually using the name of Jesus in vain and praying in your own name. Jesus' name means literally God is salvation, but you think that you are salvation. We all do. We all do. We all think we are saved, and now I'm using the word in the way it's used in the Old Testament and in the New. It's a very big word. We all think that we are created, justified, and made right by our own will, our own judgment. But we are saved by the judgment of God. That thing that thinks you are salvation is your ego. In the light of God is salvation, your ego must die. Stop. Shabbat. I don't want to be God. I want you to decide what's right for me. I surrender to your will. You can't kneel down in the middle of a highway and live to talk about it, son. <laughs> I love that clip. 
But it's true, and I'm serious as a, as a heart attack. The revelation of Jesus, which is the revelation of God is salvation, which is the revelation of the judgment of God, will destroy your ego. Your belief that you are salvation. The walled city in which you hide. It will destroy the old man that you so often think you are, and that can be terrifying. But it is absolutely good, for it is the presence of the good. God is salvation, Jesus. Well, anyway, the seventh seal is, is opened, and everyone falls silent for about half an hour. I've read that they think it takes about half an hour, it would take about a half an hour for the high priest to make atonement behind the veil in the temple. I don't know. But everyone is silent, and I think they're speechless, for they have nothing to say. They cannot speak. And maybe God will not speak, for he's waiting for us to say something new all are silent until the angel that stands on the altar who had been given much incense mixes his incense with our incense and the fragrance the sweet fragrance rises before the throne hebrews 7:25 he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to god through him since he always lives to make intercession for them romans 8:26 likewise the spirit helps us in our weaknesses for we do not know how to pray as we ought but that very spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words and God who searches the heart knows what is the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God on the altar Jesus mixes our prayers with his prayer and he prays father forgive them and on the cross he prayed my God my God why have you forsaken me you see that's our line and that's the first line of Psalm 22 and I believe he prays it all the way through to the end verse 31 they shall come and proclaim his righteousness his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it it is finished and then into your hands I commit my spirit that's the very spirit that descends into you and cries Abba Father. Romans 8:15 When we cry Abba Father, it is the Spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. He descends into the temple that is our heart and cries Abba. He stands on the altar and mediates my prayers. I pray, God, give me money. And Jesus said, Peter, or, or God, what what Peter means, what what we what we mean is we need to trust you, Father. You pray, God, I hate you. And what Jesus prays is, Father, what she means is that she really longs for you. She wants to see you. Brendan Manning used to tell of a minister friend for whom prayer no longer seemed to work. Why? Because God no, God no longer seemed to, to work for him. He resigned his church, abandoned his family, fled to this logging camp somewhere in Canada. One afternoon, sitting in his trailer, his aluminum trailer, shivering in midwinter, the electric heater went out, cursing this latest evidence of a God-forsaken world. This minister lifted his head and he shouted, God, I hate you! And then he sunk to his knees, weeping. 
And then there, in the silence, he heard Christ say, I know. It's okay. And then shattered, this broken man heard the Lord within him weeping. Then he stood up and started home. God will silence your ego. But perhaps we can humble ourselves. I, I think that's the meaning of the Sabbath commandment. I think that's why we need to come here and, and sit before the table of the Lord. I think that's why David wrote, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a child quieted at his mother's breast, so is my soul. John 3, remember what Jesus says? This is the judgment, the light. <laughs> this is judgment, the light has come into the world. You know light is eternal? You ask a physicist. Um, for a photon of light, it is always now. Uh, philosophers, theologians, and, and now physicists, uh, they, they, they point out that now is the point that eternity touches time, and eternity and time touches eternity. John 12, Palm Sunday, Jesus, Jesus the light, okay? Jesus the light lifted his head, and remember what he said? Now is the judgment. Now. You see, I think your ego can only exist in time. Chronos, cr chronological time. We will re soon read that the beast was, is not, and is to come. The beast is an imitation Christ, an antichrist, and so is your ego. It's powered by what? Shame and pride in the past and anxiety about your future. It's all about what you have done and what you think you can do, but it's not about the eternal truth, which is always now. Eckhart Tolle wrote this. For the ego to survive, it must make time, past and future, more important than the present moment. You see, if you really had faith in grace, I mean, if you really could trust in the depths of your being that you were justified, sanctified, created in the image of God right now, I suspect that you would have no ego and you would be free. You'd be awake in the new creation. You would see what John saw, the new Jerusalem coming down. In other words, you would know that the kingdom of heaven, <laughs> the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's at hand. And it would change the way you spoke. And it would change the way you prayed. The words might be the same, but the will behind the words would be holy. You wouldn't pray in anxiety and fear, but you would pray in faith and hope and love. You would know that you cannot achieve faith. You can only be faithful. 
You can't manufacture hope. You can only surrender to hope right now. You can't make love. You can only let love make you and all around you. You can't control love. You can only like dance to love as if love were the music and the atmosphere all around you. And the only way you can dance to it is to surrender to it right now. Faith, hope, and love are an eternal kingdom that is all around you. That means that you don't pray things into existence. You pray existence into things. You say, Father, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You pray existence into things. Your prayer connects eternity to time. If you really believed it is finished, I think you would believe that all things are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. You, you, you would ask for whatever you desire, believing that you already had it and knowing that you will have it because actually you do. You would ask for whatever you desire, but whatever you desire would be God's desire. In other words, it would be good. It would be right. You would ask in the name of Jesus for you would know God is salvation. I don't know. But, but I think this is maybe what the mystics and the contemplatives have been saying all along. So this last year, I've been working at taking time for silence. That is just being still and being present to God in, in the now. I may speak some anxieties and fears in the beginning, but then I sit in silence, uh, trusting or trying to trust that I don't need to defend myself from God with words, because that's what we do when we pray, right? And then after about a half an hour of silence, I speak. And I think those words are different. They're eternal. God has created all things that I would speak those words. And speaking those words, I think I'm somehow involved in the creation of all things. So are those words determined or free? Maybe they're both. For you see, in that moment, the Creator and I are somehow one. I am. We need prayers of words, yes, writes Madeline Engel. The words are the path to contemplation, but the deepest communion with God is beyond words on the other side of silence. Your life is to be a prayer spoken from the other side of silence. I think I can probably best explain with one of my favorite stories. Happened about 24 years ago, true story, because it happened to me, I remember it. It was the first time that I ever saw Jarek Connolly sit still. Jarek was four years old at the time. I was performing the marriage ceremony for his mother, Janiel, and her boyfriend, Andy. Janiel was white, Andy was white, and Jarek was chocolate brown. His flesh told him, Andy is not your father. 
And now Andy is taking your mother. I suspect that's why Jarek was always moving, always looking for trouble. He was restless. He could not sit still. I mean, it really was a, a problem at church. But during the ceremony, he was just everywhere. He was absolutely out of control. He started out as the ring bearer, but by the time we got to the vows, someone else was holding the ring, and Jarek was imprisoned between two strong relatives in the front row. Janiel said her vows. Andy said his vows. Jarek was squirming in his seat. I was starting the ring ceremony when suddenly Andy stopped me. In front of everyone, he turned around and he stared Jarek down and he said, Jarek! And Jarek just froze. Everyone in the sanctuary froze. He said, Jarek! I will always love you. Jarek, I will always be your father, and you will always be my son. And Jarek Connolly did not move, did not make a sound for the rest of the service. I didn't get to hear it, but I bet the next word that he spoke was something like this. Daddy, Abba, Father. Last I heard, which was a few years ago, Jarek was doing really well and planning to graduate from West Point Military Academy where they do demand a little bit of self-control. <laughs> I'm just saying I hope you all take time to sit still before the judgment of your father. Be silent and then speak. This is the judgment of your Father. This is the eternal covenant. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. This is the judgment of God. Look around. Go ahead and look around. <laughs> All of this, or at least the form of this, is temporal. It's fading away. It's illusory. And this is eternal. The dark cups are wine, the light cups are juice, and the Father is calling you to come to his table 
and place the eternal in the temporal. Be born again. Eternal life in Jesus' name. Pray with me and just say, Thank you, Father. So I, I hope that you take time just to be silent before the Lord. Um, authors that I've liked that have helped in talking about that are like Richard Rohr, Thomas Keating, some of the contemplatives. But as soon as you turn it into a formula, you see what we've done. We've taken the living word and we, we've turned it into written words, right? But I think the point is to just sit still before the Lord and to not defend yourself with your words. And that may be hard because it may feel at times like God's presence will burn you up and you want to hide, but just, just let that happen. I think it's called waiting on the Lord. I think it's also important for churches. And so I hope we wait on the Lord, which is a posture of the heart. And you'll remember that's what they did on Pentecost, remember? They had been waiting for 49 days. And I'm sure they went to the bathroom. I'm sure some of them had to go to work or brush their teeth or whatever they did back then. But it was a posture of waiting. And then you remember what happened. The fire came down from heaven and they began to speak in other languages. And, and then it kind of seemed to wear off a bit and we still have to keep waiting as long as we live in this world, waiting, waiting on the Lord. There was one last, that last verse that I read that you may have thought that I forgot about. Revelation 8.5, listen to this again. Then the angel took the censer in which had been our prayers and filled it, and I think the angel's Jesus, filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. And you kind of you go, why would he do that? Well, listen to Zephaniah, chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. You, you see, the gospel doesn't change. It's been there all along. This is what Zephaniah writes. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. For the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. So may you wait and watch and then speak. In Jesus' name, may you believe the gospel and live. Amen.